Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's July 3rd, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Chris Deaton and Ethan Epstein of The Weekly Standard. Hey, happy 4th of July, guys. You too. Same to you. Are you guys into fireworks? Uh, a little eh, bit, yeah. Less so, cra- less so the Americans, crowds that a, they generate. Real, real Americans are into fireworks, so. Yeah, I'd say that it, it was more of a childhood fancy, I think. I mean, we I grew up in a small town that was adjacent to the Ohio River, and we had, you know, a little bit of a valley area. So toward the hilltop of my town, we could sit, you know, atop the hilltop and look over the fireworks go off of the barge, and it was kind of a neat vantage point, but... That was 20 years. Charlie, I really think I think it's actually real Chinese people that are into fireworks. They are they're mm. the progenitors of it. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that we have a significant trade imbalance when it comes to the fireworks. A fair point. A fair it's point. Serious. It, 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 it is. Yeah. Um, we have a lot to talk about today. The president says that he has uh, already interviewed four candidates for the U.S. Supreme Court, and he's going to make an appointment on Monday, which. Uh, um, gives new meaning to the term fast track. Uh, the trade war is getting very real. Um, what a surprise. We were told it was going to be quick and easy. But uh, And Scott Pruitt has found his way back into the uh, uh, back into the news. But but I want to start off with a piece, uh, Chris, that you have up on the Weekly Standard that, that seems to be all the buzz this week. Is, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the future of the Democratic Party? Of course, she is the progressive, I think she describes herself as a socialist candidate who shocked the world by winning this Democratic primary against, uh, you know, entrenched incumbent Joe Crowley in, in New York City. And she's become a media superstar. So let's let's, you know, the as the Democratic Party clearly is searching and flailing around to find its new identity She's clearly the flavor of the week. So let's go into your piece, Chris. Uh, is is uh, Alexandria the future of the Democratic Party? Yeah, Charlie, it's an interesting question from a few different standpoints, just because we have to remember that there is an age component. The Democratic Party and its leadership is very old. There's a policy component. Uh, an incumbent like Joe Crowley was, I would say for these times, a fairly conventional center-left Pelosi-esque Democrat. Obviously, he was um, speculated to be next in line to be minority leader, majority leader, speaker, whatever ends up happening with House control uh, once Pelosi stepped aside or retired. But I think the one that I really went into in this piece was this age component because Ocasio-Cortez is just 28 years old. And... I think that we have got. And, and, and by the way, you, you put it for a party desperately in need of pre-social security age blood. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A party that is in need of people who are pre-septuagenarian and octogenarian. <laughs> um, I, I think that with a 28-year-old and you pair that with this, this concept, this perception that we have that young people, millennials, people of Ocasio-Cortez's age or tacking hard left, that it's worthwhile to explore the question, well, is she representative of this demographic? And as such, are people like her and the people around the country who support her, including people in her district, which is relevant to this election right now, going to sort of represent the future of the Democratic Party and push people like her and policies like her forward? To your point, Charlie, she was a democratic socialist, I think, is kind of the term that both she and some media outlets have both agreed upon as a middle ground to describe her politics. What fascinates me is that she doesn't appear representative of any sort of trend among millennials that uh, would reflect them tacking hard left as a group. I went into some data from the Harvard Institute of Politics. They 
publish a youth poll um, every spring, sometimes in the fall to put out supplementals. And I compared the numbers between 2008 and 2017 because I would figure that a 10-year window would provide you some evidence as to whether or not the people of this age group, of course, the people polled in 2008 have aged out of this, but just millennial thinking or under 30 thinking among voters in general has this changed. And if you look at some of the key questions, the big one that sticks out to me is support of health insurance. The question is, basic health insurance is a right for all people. And if someone has no means of paying for it, the government should provide it. Do you agree or disagree? In 2008, 61% agreed. In 2017, just 46% agreed. Mm. I think a 15% drop is relatively significant. And if it shows you anything, it shows that well, I don't think this millennial group is tacking left to the point where, oh, yeah, single-payer health care is something that we definitely need. There's definitely a chunk of young voters who think that way. But I don't think Ocasio-Cortez is representative of a group that is tacking more in that direction. In fact, it appears they're tacking less. And there are other questions that reflect that as well, but that was yeah, one that stuck out. This is why I wanted to talk with you, because these numbers really do challenge the conventional wisdom, uh, the entrenched uh, conventional wisdom, which is that, that the young voters are, are, are not only you know left, but they are moving left rapidly. And, and, th- and if the Democratic Party wants to stay relevant, it's got to it's got to follow them. And as you point out, and this, this question on, on health care is, is very interesting. I mean, it's not directly asking single payer, but you exactly. know, when you ask, is, is, is it a right? That's that seems like the that seems pretty very close to this. It's, and, and you point out that millennials are actually closely divided on polarizing issues such as immigration and taxes. Now, mm-hmm. clearly to the left on environment and health care, no question yes. about that. But, you know, your main point is there's no indication that they have veered further to the left in recent years. And that that strikes me as a, as a rather significant uh, data point. Right. And, and especially if you, you know, abide or believe in, in the old axiom that, you know, 20 year olds are a bunch of mindless liberals. And by the time they're 40 and they've doubled their age, they've become wizened conservatives. You know, I mean, make of make of that kind of, uh, you know, I, it's an apocryphal quote. I can't remember. I think it was Churchill that that was attributed to. And I, there's all sorts of apocrypha on the Internet when it comes to quotes like that. But if you it's probably you know, also attributed to Franklin, Jefferson, you know, yeah, yeah. Oscar yeah, Wilde, yeah. Yeah. Bill Gates. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Bill Gates, yeah. Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> Marcus Aurelius and Cicero. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, but but, you know, whether or not you believe in that type of thinking or not, I, I do think that, Charlie, it is interesting because you would not really expect these voters to just as a function of aging into, you know, I've made this point in the past and I've talked to pollsters about this, you know, when you age into these big life events like, you know, buying a home and getting married and having children, these economic issues start to hit you a little more. You have to worry about a regular mortgage payment. You have to worry about what your property tax bill is going to look like. You have to worry about some of these economic issues that, you know, when you're younger, you may not have to worry about. Now, there are unique economic issues to young people like student debts. And one of Ocasio-Cortez's big things is that public universities should be free for everybody. That's going to be appealing to a lot of young voters. Of course, there's the whole how do you pay for it question. But there are issues that are unique to voters of that age. But as they age into some of these, you know, being confronted with these new economic and social issues just as a function of growing up, I'm really curious to see how that group is going to end up reflecting or meshing with politics of Ocasio-Cortez's persuasion, because it just doesn't look like there's as neat um, of a parallel right now as a, a lot of conventional wisdom would hold. 
Now you you saw this Quinnipiac poll that came out uh, I think yesterday showing this uh, this massive gender gap, um, including a gender gap among young voters. Uh, I'm looking at uh, among ages 18 to 34. Asked uh, you know the generic ballot question, Democrat or Republican? Men men uh, favor Republicans 50 to 47, pretty evenly divided. But among young women, 68 to 24, they favor oh. Democrats. 68 to 24. Which you know raises the question. I mean, on all these economic issues, you know, maybe they're they're not tacking left, but then there are all the cultural issues, the social mm-hmm. issues, and and I wonder, you know, in the back of my mind, how this uh, the Supreme Court debate uh, that's going to focus on Roe versus Wade is going to play out. That that uh, you know, not just with with younger voters, but this really dramatic split between young women and young men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is going to be really interesting. I mean, this is a. I think it was the New York Times that just had uh, a piece out a few days ago talking about congressional candidates around the country. Um, is this the moment in politics for women? Um, there are a lot of high-profile progressive women that are beginning to get nominated um, for some seats. There's another one, and this is a really interesting contrast here, Charlie. There is a candidate in uh, suburban Omaha. I think it's the Nebraska 2nd District, and her name escapes me at the moment. I apologize. I'll try to think of it. But it's, it's, a, it's a district where the Cook political uh, rating of how big of a favorite a generic Democrat is is only plus four points. Ocasio-Cortez's district is plus 29. Mm-hmm. And she herself has made the point over and over and over again that, look, somebody like me can afford to get out in front on these issues, which which include these cultural issues um, that might be of greater importance or impact the female voters, as you point out, Charlie, then you would be able to get away with in some more flyover districts or districts like you are, like you see in suburban Nebraska. What's going to be interesting to me is how that energy is channeled in districts like the Nebraska second. Is that going to be enough in a relatively split district to overcome Republican attack ads, overcome Republican turnout. Because if you begin to see that, then yes, I do think that that gender gap among young voters uh, may reflect something really, really significant moving forward. Right, Ethan, I want to ask you, I'm going to throw this one at you sure. since we're talking about uh, women. Uh, um, before we started this podcast, I said we have to come up with, with different words to uh, uh, rather than bizarre and unprecedented because I think we've overused those. And if we don't come up with new words, they'll be totally worn out by the end of the Trump presidency. But uh, uh, yesterday, the the official White House Twitter account was used to attack two female Democratic senators who opposed President Trump's immigration agenda. Uh, the first one was uh, aimed at uh, Senator uh, California Senator uh, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, why are you supporting the animals of MS-13? And uh, said, you must know what ICE really, um, hold on, well, you must know what ICE really does, and then linked to news releases detailing the agency's work. And then uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was also targeted. Why are you supporting criminals moving weapons, drugs, and victims across our nation's borders? I I find this interesting on on several levels. First of all, the use of the official White House account, the fact that he is... Uh, singling out two prominent female uh, senators, and that that he is, uh, or that he, whoever is writing this, uh, Dan Scavino or, or whatever, uh, seems to be doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on the use of the word animals. Your thoughts, Ethan? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's barren uh, if anyone is writing these. Uh, I, you know, it's... <laughs> Undercovered story of the day. Exactly. No, I think it's, um, obviously, it's sort of... 
on its face inappropriate for what is an official, you know, governmental body, the People's House, the White House, to be engaging in such naked politicking. I mean, on the other hand, the presidency sort of comes with that. You know, there's this adage about how incumbent presidents have a built-in advantage based on, for example, the fact that they get to land in Air Force One and it's the backdrop. So there's always going to be this melding between what are public entities and what is sort of thought of as a kind of private political campaign. On the other hand, it's kind of ridiculous that the official White House um, Twitter campaign is going after these two senators and really in such sort of demagogic language, too. Um, I I think, you know, one thing that I have noticed about the president is he's very, very uh, strategic in the enemies that he chooses and that he singles out, that he wants to have a fight with a Maxine Waters. He wants to have a fight with NFL players. He would love to have a fight with uh, Kamala Harris. He wants to make, he wants to designate who the face of the opposition is. And he's been very, very successful doing it. The second point is that, um, you know, maybe not in in these tweets, but, you know, I I think he senses, and I think accurately senses real vulnerability among Democrats who've stumbled into this bizarre position of abolishing ICE. Yeah. um, Which strikes me as uh, not just simply extreme, since we're talking about the future of the party, but also really seriously bad politics. And so you can see that that he's trying to frame this immigration issue, not about the cruelty at the border of separating families, um, you know, but but left wing women, including, you know, left wing African-American women from California who are basically supporting um, the animals of MS-13. And, and, you know, this gives you some sense of the kind of ride we're in between now and the midterms. No, I I think that's right. And uh, Trump has proven to be shrewd on a number of counts and has has – He's, he's kind of accomplished the sort of political jujitsu where he can turn what should be a disadvantage into an advantage. Is he doing it in a, in a demagogic way? Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's quite, you know, say what you will about Kamala Harris. She does not, quote, support MS-13. And, no. uh, but, you know, here we are talking about it. Does she? I mean, the president has said it, so now we need to examine. Does Kamala Harris support MS-13? I don't know. We should look into it. Yeah, this it is kind of the lowest common denominator that uh, that you know you folks are wrong. I mean, it's you know they are wrong on some of these issues, but that doesn't mean that they are actively supporting exactly. the gangs moving guns around. Right. It's like, exactly. Uh, okay. Um, more more consequentially, Ethan, you have written. We talked to you before about uh, the Norks, what the North Koreans are doing, uh, what came out of that uh, Singapore summit, and now we're getting uh, reports. That the Koreans, not the North Koreans, are not only not denuclearizing uh, the peninsula, but they are taking steps to, uh, you know, expand their nuclear capabilities, and apparently are actively trying to deceive the United States, or at least that's what the intelligence agencies are saying. Which, of course, raises the question: Was Donald Trump duped in Singapore? Well, it. You know, I'm going to be kind of lame here and say it's still too early to tell. I mean, Mike Pompeo is going to go back to North Korea. Uh, we'll see whether any concrete steps towards denuclearization are taken. What is clear to me is that the intelligence community clearly thinks that this was a misstep, that Trump has been played. And that's why they're, you know, releasing all this to places like NBC News. And it's I'm not going, you know, deep, deep state conspiracy here, but they're clearly trying to undermine what Trump views as a victory by pointing out that maybe it wasn't a victory um, and and putting that out for public consumption. And I'm not going to pretend to be outraged about these leaks, because if the intelligence agency is saying, look, um, we still face this nuclear threat. um, This is kind of this is the kind of information that you really, really want to know. Yeah. I mean, you could argue it's a patriotic duty. I mean, this raises the question of whether or not they've 
they've given this information to the president and he is either ignoring it or has consciously decided that, uh, you know, if he keeps saying that it's a success, then it becomes a success. I, I think scary on, the, on either ground. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's it's definitely troubling. And it's of, of course, it's not surprising. I mean, we've discussed it many times. Uh, there's no strategic reason that Kim Jong Un has to denuclearize. Um, uh, Unless he truly wants to pull a Deng Xiaoping and sort of open up North Korea, but the incentives are really aligned against him doing that because it puts him and his crime family at risk. So, you know, just just sort of thinking about the grander situation there, everything is sort of playing out the way you would expect it to. Okay, so here's the the other part is I'm I'm trying to imagine what is going through Vladimir Putin's mind as he's watching this, and we we have this summit coming up and. Almost every you correct me if I'm wrong about this. I don't want to be unfair here, but but almost everything we're hearing about this summit is um, is, is 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 President Trump preparing to make various concessions. You know, no, you didn't really interfere in uh, the in the in the 2016 election. Maybe we will recognize uh, your seizure of uh, yeah. Crimea. Uh, you know, NATO is not necessarily that important. Um, maybe we would uh, consider uh, withdrawing. Uh, American troops from 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 Western Europe. Um, maybe we will look the other way about what's going on in Syria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so you know, and and Vladimir Putin is is essentially watching how Kim kind of played Trump. Yeah. So I, I'm 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 actually getting more worried about this upcoming summit. Uh, you know, it's you know a lot of people are saying, well, it's just going to be a wash. I, I'm I'm not I'm not that I'm not that uh, that optimistic about it. So, I mean, first of all, Putin, of course, is already coming off the victory of Russia having beaten Spain in the World Cup. So it's, uh, <laughs> awesome. things, things are going well. Yeah. Um, I, I, what is most striking out of that litany that that you've just brought is the Crimea issue because I, I was I mistaken or did John Bolton even suggest that the U.S. might recognize Crimea as part of Russia now there are of course yes yes which is really amazing <laughs> yeah. now there are historic reasons that Crimea ha- was historically Russia you know I, I am actually quite sympathetic to that argument but of course the way it happened was completely illegitimate you, you really can't recognize that and what worries me looking to the other side of the globe is the precedent it sense uh, because once you've allowed a great power to kind of move in on territory that was historically theirs and sort of shrugged at it where does that leave for example china and taiwan i mean i've been quite worried that uh, taiwan could become a sort of crimea option for for china and were the u.s of all countries to sort of say man well it's a fait accompli it's fine now i mean think of the signal that sends yeah, I, I was I was actually on a show yesterday with the former ambassador from from Russia who was going through the uh, ambassador McFall, mm. who was going through what he's afraid is going to happen, which is that Putin will come in and say, you know what, let's let's forget about the past. Let's right, put exactly. all this behind yep. us. Let's let's you and me, you know, you and I, we we are you know the greatest leaders in the world, and let's just put all that other stuff, you know, bust the, out the reset like, button. And you know what? Um, I was listening to that going, that is really very, very plausible. Uh, today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by the uh, the Lending Club. For decades, credit cards have been telling us to buy it now and pay for it later, sort of like the federal uh, government, uh, with interest. And despite your best intentions, that interest can get out of control fast. But with Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed-rate personal loans, no trips to a bank, no high-interest credit cards. All you have to do is go to LendingClub.com. Tell them about yourself, how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. 
This is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued. So go to LendingClub.com standard. Check your rate in minutes. Borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com standard. LendingClub.com standard. All loans made by WebBank. Member FDIC equal housing lender. Okay, we have a few minutes left. Chris, I want to ask you about uh, this. Uh, Scott Pruitt is back in the news again. Uh, some whistleblowers coming out with a variety of, I mean, it's it's hard to almost keep up with, with the, the latest Scott Pruitt uh, swampy stories. Um, you know, more details about how he wanted to get his wife a, a job, how they messed around with their calendar. You know, I guess the, the the question is we we've been on this this death watch for Scott Pruitt, but there's no indication, at least as of today, that that Donald Trump wants to dump him. And frankly, this is an audience of one. Correct. Mm-hmm. Trump stands by the people. Uh, I think this is a consistent demonstration over time with him. He stands by the people who demonstrate loyalty, fealty, whatever you want to call it, with respect to policy, with respect to not speaking out against the administration, not running afoul. Um, but he's become a real embarrassment. I mean, and if you're talking about draining in the swamp, this guy is the swampiest swamp creature in in D.C. Right. And, and I think if anything to this point of, of him sticking around, what that reflects is just the power that that kind of loyalty and that personal likability hold. It, so is, who knows is, what happens in the future with this? But uh, just, just to just to make one quick point, Charlie, sure. I think what was in, what was interesting to me about you mentioned the whole calendar issue of scrubbing the calendar. The whistleblower who was named in that story was on the record. I mean, the yeah. per, the, per, the person's position was named. The person himself was named. I mean, a lot of times these sorts of stories come from anonymous sources or whatever inside of the office. Now, of course, the guy is a is a former staffer, so that kind of loosens you up a little bit. But I mean, it just is striking to me that when you have people going on the record with this kind of stuff, is kind of striking about how this guy's fall might be imminent. I mean, there's. Nobody's worried about protecting themselves with respect to reputation at that point if you're going on the record and torching the guy like That's that. A, that, is, that is a really good point. You know, and this is an administration that has not hesitated to pull the trigger and firing people. Obviously, Trump likes firing people. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a period of time where they were certainly letting him twist in the in the wind on all of this. I guess the, the, the question I always have in the back of my mind is that you would think that a guy like Pruitt, who's, you know, been around the block, he is not a newbie that he would have a gene of self-preservation to know that if you do X, Y, and Z, it will end badly. And, uh, you know, what we're finding out is that, that these, these, you know, these, these ethical breaches are not one-offs, that there's a pattern there that I just don't quite get. And certainly was, was not consistent with what we thought he was when he, when he first came here from Oklahoma. So, I don't know. Oh yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so next week, we'll talk a little bit later. Obviously, we're not going to deal with this today because, you know, it's time to go and have a holiday week, you know. But next week, obviously, is going to be a massive week with, uh, with, with with summits and the president naming a Supreme Court uh, justice, which is obviously going to be, you know, that's going to be dominating uh, all of the conversations and all of the politics between now and November. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the holiday weekend with your families. You too. Thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back. Well, we're not going to be back tomorrow because, hey, it's July 4th, but we'll be back on Thursday, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>